0: Today's reading is from Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 9a. The Lord God gave me an educated tongue to know how to respond to the weary with a word that will awaken them in the morning. God awakens my ear in the morning to listen, as educated people do. The Lord God opened my ear. I didn't rebel. I didn't turn my back. Instead, I gave my body to attackers and my cheeks to beard pluckers. I didn't hide my face from insults and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I haven't been insulted. Therefore, I set my face like flint and knew I wouldn't be ashamed. The one who will declare me innocent is near. Who will argue with me? Let's stand up together. Who will bring judgment against me? Let him approach me. Look, the Lord God will help me.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Although I wish I could convince my daughter Alice that it was a happy Palm Sunday. She was proceeding with her palm branch very stoically this morning. We haven't met. My name is Grant Miller. I have the privilege of pastoring our college students here at College Church. And uh, one quick note, uh, when I walked out this morning dressed to drive out to Middleton to preach this morning, uh, my wife Jen said, wow, you look really nice. That wasn't really the funny part of the story, (laughs) that's And I said, yeah, a few weeks ago, the last time Pastor Diane preached, she kind of called out myself and Brent and Pastor Scott for the uh, sort of male college church preacher attire, uh, which is kind of the tan pants, blue blazer thing, which I'm going to be honest, both of you are wearing today. (laughs) (laughs) You can't write this, folks. Can't make this up. And I said, challenge is accepted. I'm going to show up today a little bit. Uh, to the next level. So I hope Pastor Diane, this is all right, acceptable to you. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Well, I'm excited to to be able to bring the word this morning. Uh, I, this is not the first time I've preached this sermon uh, today. I, I was out at Middleton, but this week actually, not the first time I've preached this sermon. Uh, we went back to Vancouver over the weekend, the first part of uh, NNU spring break, to visit my family, my folks. And uh, a couple weeks ago, my brother in law heard that we were coming, and he called me and said, "Hey." At our church, we're doing this class on Monday nights for people who are interested in maybe learning how to preach and thinking about what that looks like. They want to hone their skills. Uh, I know that you preach semi-regularly. Would love it if you would come and maybe lead us for a little bit uh, in how how you prepare, how you plan a sermon. I said, that's awesome. Uh, I would love to. And actually, I'm preaching that week. And so I can come and bring my sermon outline. I can talk about my preparation, how I get in the word. And he said, that's great. I said, how long do you want me to preach for? And he said, oh, we go for about 90 minutes, but plan for 45 with translation. Translation. Then I remembered something very important that I should have obviously remembered very early on. My brother-in-law's name is Felix Polyakov. He immigrated here as a young man when the Soviet Union fell. And, uh, he is, a, is in pastoral leadership at a Russian language church in Vancouver called Smyrna, which is an awesome group. I love them. They love my sister mostly more than anything. When they found out I was her brother, they all go, oh, great, we love Melissa, right? So I've preached this sermon in English, heard it preached back in Russian, which is fantastic, and my very cheeky brother-in-law who was there in attendance, there's about 15, 20 folks there. At the end of my outline, I kind of walked them through my points, Uh, He said, well, since this is a preaching ministry, are we allowed to offer a critique on your sermon? Kind of half smiling. I said, yeah, ha, ha, ha. But like four hands had already gone up. I'm not not exaggerating. So we had a great time. If any of you know uh, folks from Slavic communities, uh, they're pretty blunt in their communication. And uh, we had a great conversation about some of the points of my sermon today. So I've got some great feedback there. And if there any of them are watching, I want them to know, thank you so much. I had a great time. It was honestly a fantastic opportunity to gather with them. But on that note, I would love for us to jump into the gospel text. So if you are willing and able, if you'd stand as we read Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The gospel of Mark says this. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, its master needs it, and he will send it back right away. They went and found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. Some people standing around said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them just what Jesus said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of them and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. After he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Something about me that I love to talk about. I love parades. Love them. Love parades. I love the big parades. Uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is always uh, on in the mornings of Thanksgiving at our house. The Rose Parade, obviously, a really fun thing to watch uh, when the new year comes. But I I don't necessarily love the, the big, big parades in the same way that my heart inclines toward the small town parade. I love small town parades. I love the fire trucks. I love the couple of guys who own classic cars who come out and cruise down the street. I love the jazzercise class from the local community center. (laughs) I love them, I love them. Just after my sophomore year in college, I was uh, double majoring in political science and public communications. I needed an internship for both. and We happened to know uh, a state senator who was running for re-election and I thought, well great, I can cross both of these internships off, double up on the hours. And, and do this all summer, it would be awesome. And so we got in touch with him and he said, yeah, we can definitely bring you on. How many hours do you need though? So that summer was mostly spent doing what a lot of dumb young interns do, assembling yard signs, dropping them off. Lots of great stories there. People love to comment on yard signs, especially when you're dropping them off. That's great driving by. But the job that I loved the most that summer, I got to drive the truck in the parades. In all these little towns in the far-flung reaches of Clark County, Washington. Amboy? No? No one? Okay. Uh, Yakult? No? Lots and lots of parades. I got to drive the truck. We had gotten a hold of this classic 1950s Chevy pickup truck, mostly original, but had been made very loud. So it was very fun to drive. Uh, And I got to drive it with this big sign in the back, this four-by-eight-foot sign that said the name of our campaign. And I got to drive the truck. One of my uh, most emotionally impacting moments of that summer came when I was driving the truck in Ridgefield, Washington. Some of you have heard of Ridgefield, I think. Driving the truck down that parade. And it was a very busy parade. So there were lots of folks on the sides of the road. Lots of people walking in the street. A more narrow section of the parade where lots of our volunteers were walking. And so having to drive pretty slowly. Be very careful. And like lots of older original engines, this engine of this truck was pretty finicky. It needed a steady flow of fuel to keep going, right? And when you're driving in a parade, you're kind of in neutral a lot of the time, trying to just coast more than anything. And sure enough, not getting enough fuel, not getting enough fuel, the truck dies right there in the middle of the road. When a truck dies in a parade, it stops being a parade, uh, if you didn't know. So I, being the uh, brilliant young mechanic I was, just started pumping the gas pedal, right? Turning the key, praying. Please, 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 please. And in that moment, I had a very new idea of what a parade becomes, depending on your point of view. The entire world was looking at me, right? I felt. I've got all of the the campaign volunteers kind of passing me. We've got people piling up behind me. I've got folks on the sides of the road who are trying to figure out what is going on here. And at the wheel of this truck is this idiot 20-year-old. Pumping the gas. And I also uh, felt a lot of pressure, right? There's a, something about a metaphor of a broken down truck with a political sign in the back, right? Campaign. So I'm praying and praying and praying. People are kind of, qua- the whole place just a hush falls. And finally, catches it and it roars So life. And it roars to life, right? Plenty of fuel there. And I kid you not, this little one-block section of street that was witnessing my fiasco erupted in cheers. It was the strong, loudest thing I've ever heard. It was incredible. I was soaring, right? And this is also no exaggeration. I look out onto the side of the road, and who do I see? No, no joke. My biggest high school crush watched me experience this moment of victory. And I was just, just like, yes, yes! Now, by the grace of God, we never talked. It wasn't that powerful of a moment. And uh, I'm happily married now to someone significantly more important to me but man that moment in that parade changed how I felt about parades it became something very very personal to me and also helped me understand that parades differ very greatly depending on our perspective and whether or not we're participating in them whether I'm standing on the side of the road whether I'm walking as a participant whether I'm in the truck whether I'm the one being celebrated like the beauty queen in the back of the Corvette or I'm driving the truck. It depends a lot. There's different pressures and different ideas, different contexts that inform the way that we experience this thing. And so here we come to this parade, cruising down the road into Jerusalem. I think we're bringing lots and lots of different perspectives and contexts and cultural backgrounds into how we experience it. That's really the story of Holy Week, I think, leading up to Easter. One of the Most fun I've ever had in a performing role was when I got to play Judas uh, for a few years in No Greater Love down the street. One of the reasons I liked it so much was because it challenged me in a new way. Often I had imagined that Judas was just the big bad guy during the Easter story, the one who was willing to go and sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But the way it's written in that show, and if you've seen it, you would know, Judas is significantly more complicated than that. Judas actually believes in this story That Jesus has the power and has come to set people free and he wants to force Jesus' hand essentially by getting him to have to defend himself when he's betrayed. And as we know, that's not how it turns out. And so here in Mark chapter 11, we have a similarly fascinating, complex scene. One of my favorite parts about the book of Mark, and we've obviously been in Mark several times over the years here, is how clearly Jesus is represented as a person in the story. Sometimes when I read about Jesus and when we hear sermons or messages about Jesus, it's tempting to imagine that through his clear and divine foreknowledge, he's just kind of going through the motions of his life. He knows everybody's stories. He knows the lines. He knows the replies. It's all just cues, and and he's kind of just, yes, yes, heal, heal. In the Gospel of Mark, we have very little room for that kind of interpretation of Jesus. Instead, right, Jesus is dynamic, emotional, emotional. Incisive, he offers just cutting and witty commentary. He dances circles around the Pharisees every time they try to trick him. He's a master logician and rhetorician and preacher. He's just extremely engaging as a person in the text. He also never seems to do anything without pure intentionality. And this triumphal entry is no different. Knowing, right, that he's got this reputational sway, there's kind of this wave that's just cresting in terms of his popularity. And despite the fact that throughout the text, the entire time up to this point, when he heals someone or when he asks them who they say he is and they get it right or they recognize him as Savior, he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Shh. Despite his best efforts, people still are grasping on to the message. So instead of allowing this wave to kind of crest and carry him into Jerusalem during Passover when the city is bustling and he could really set up whatever kind of system he wants, to be honest, instead he uses a master stroke of imagery biblical knowledge to completely destabilize expectations. So today what I want to do is talk about where we stand in the crowd watching this parade.
0: Because
1: I imagine there's lots of different perspectives, lots of different ideas, motivations, contexts that are bringing people to stand and watch this Jesus enter Jerusalem during Passover. There's lots of folks here, right? I imagine there's Some Romans participating, watching this parade, right? With suspicion, curious about what's going on. Now, these Romans might not have the sort of biblical imagery, education in the Pentateuch, the Torah, that many of the Jews in the crowd would, but they would recognize what's happening here as something very familiar culturally. So would most of the Roman Jews, the Jews who have come, the diaspora, who have come to celebrate Passover, they would recognize some significant trappings of Roman custom here. There's a reason why it's called the triumphal entry, right? So a Roman triumph, you might recognize that if you're a student of history or if you enjoyed any 1950s historical Roman epics, right? It's this moment when a general or an emperor returns from battle and the gates are thrown open and a massive procession happens. So when this general out in the field conquers a a rebellion or expands the empire's territory, they'll write back to the Senate and say, I, Grantimus Millerus, want a triumph. And the Senate will debate Decide if they're going to elevate this person, glorify them, and they'll write back and say, Yes, you may have a triumph. So I'll take all my army, which I'm supporting, by the way, paying for. I'll take all my army, my prisoners, my loot, and I'm going to go back to Rome. And on a predetermined date, the streets are going to be filled with people. There's going to be massive trumpets blown. Oh, sorry, that's gross. There's going to be massive trumpets blown. They're going to open and enter the city gates. There's going to be this huge procession of soldiers and loot and exotic creatures that they might have captured, slaves, political prisoners, all day affair, hours and hours and hours snaking through the streets of Rome. And then finally, in comes the general, the one who's won the triumph. We know this, this is clearly documented historically. He would come in riding on a golden chariot, four white horses in front of him. Wearing a magnificent robe, a white robe with golden threads all woven through it. A golden crown on his head, right? A laurel crown. Wearing bright red boots. You paint his face red. Because that's the color associated with Jupiter and Mars, these Roman gods of war and power. And after hours and hours of snaking through the city and being worshipped and glorified as this conquering hero, the general would end his procession at the temple of Jupiter. right, The Roman version of Zeus. And there would begin a massive sacrifice, a slaying of political prisoners, hangings, beheadings, just gruesome stuff. And essentially that emperor, that, that general was set up for life after that. They would become a person of influence and power in the city, in the Roman structure. And in fact, it became such a powerful gesture that Caesar, when he became emperor over declared that no more will generals get triumphs. It's just reserved for emperors because it's a threat to power. So I think many Romans would probably stand and see this. Now, it's, there's significant differences. Jesus is riding a, a colt or a mule, as other gospel texts say. But people seem to be acting pretty similarly. And where does Jesus end his journey at the end of the day? At the temple. Now, there are obviously are not political prisoners and sacrifices being made. But the symbolism is still there. Now, next to the Roman might be standing somebody I would call maybe a Pharisee, right? They've got suspicion. They're curious about what Jesus is doing. But there's a whole other section of history and story within Jewish tradition that would probably be informing the Pharisees' interpretation of this incident. It's too long for me to read the whole way through, but in 1 Kings chapter 1 is an incredible story of another king who enters Jerusalem riding on a mule. So the book of 1 Kings picks up with King David feeble and old. He's sick. It says he can't get warm. It seems like he's experiencing some signs of dementia, having trouble really vocalizing his needs. And it's at that point that some of the old guard that was with David in the very beginning, the old soldiers, the priests, they go and get with Adonijah, son of David. Now, if you recall in Samuel, some of the sons of David have some controversy. They kill each other. You got one killing his brother because of, Violence he did to his sister, and then they go and he tries to take the throne. It's it's a mess. After all of that destabilization, these old guard go to Adonijah, the son of David, and say, We want to make you king. He's the oldest son of David from before David became king. The son of Haggath, the text says. And it says that Adonijah really gets excited about this. He starts gathering forces, he starts gathering horses, it says, which, as we've talked about in prior weeks, is a sign of a king that's not following God's law. He goes and has this big party, makes sacrifices, and declares himself king. Some characters that we know, that that we know from other stories, the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba get word of this. And they go to David and say, do you know what's happening? Do you know what Adonijah is doing? He's setting himself up as king. You haven't anointed him. The priests are divided over this. The people of war, the soldiers are divided over this. Didn't you say that Solomon would be king? The son of Bathsheba? And in a moment of incredible clarity and strength, David stands and he says, no, I declare Solomon king. Take him, put him on my mule, and lead him into Jerusalem. He will be king over Israel. The text picks up here in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, verse 38. Zadok the priest, the prophet Nathan, Jehoiada's son Benaiah, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites went down and put Solomon on King David's mule. They led him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the ram's horn and all the people said, long live King Solomon. All the people followed him, playing flutes and celebrating. The ground shook at their noise. So if I'm a Pharisee in the first century, watching Jesus ride a mule into Jerusalem, I see this story reflected, right? And that might give me some excitement at first because Solomon was a king who created prosperity and order. But man, it's a threat to my position right now. Because here's the thing. After Solomon became king, there was instability, great instability, amongst the soldiers in the priestly order. And despite the fact that Solomon rode rode a mule into Jerusalem, historically, right, a conquering general general, one who brings judgment, rides a horse. But a king who wants to offer mercy And reconfiguration and restructure, that king rides a mule into a conquered city. So Solomon comes riding a mule, offering a hand. But there's still great instability that follows. So as a Pharisee, I'm watching Jesus ride in here and going, where where is this coming from? What are you trying to do, Jesus? Look, our plan is working here. We get what we want. The Romans get what they want. We just kind of keep the status quo going. I don't know why you need to upset the order. Look, if you're not here to defeat the Romans and set up a kingdom, then we don't want anything to do with you. Just figure it out, Jesus. Because all these people that you're whipping up into a frenzy, they're causing problems for us. And then there's others in the crowd. Maybe not Romans, maybe not educated Jews who recall this detailed political intrigue in their history, but instead they just know the songs. They know the songs of scripture. And this scene might be calling back to them to a great chorus that they all learned and know. And that's from Zechariah chapter 9. And it reads like this in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His rule will stretch from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Moreover, by the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, prisoners of hope. Moreover, declare today that I will return double to you. And that's beautiful, right? But the text makes it clear, both in Mark and Zechariah, that something's not clicking here. Even with this passage, because ultimately, in the book of Zechariah, the rest of the story is Jerusalem doesn't accept the king of peace. They struggle mightily with that. And the book of Zechariah follows this section, this beautiful song, with a bunch of really heavy apocalyptic imagery that's more similar to Revelation than anything else. And what happens here in Mark? The same thing. A failure to lean into this king of peace. Because within a matter of days, it's clear that Jesus is not matching up with the expectation that he's going to march into Jerusalem during Passover and create a massive crowd that's going to take over. And so what? The people go from shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Coming to set up the the kingdom of David. They go from shouting Hosanna to shouting what? Crucify him, crucify him. So, today I find myself looking at this entry into Jerusalem, this triumphal parade, and finding myself in different places identifying with each of these kinds of perspectives. Sometimes, like the Roman, I look at Jesus, I see the appeal of power and authority. I see what it can do for me. As I was reading about the Roman triumph, I was reminded of the fact that this is not the last time that Jesus will be involved in an entry like this. Not physically, but metaphorically, right? A few centuries later, Constantine, a conquering general, returned back to Rome to take over. And history tells us that in the middle of a heated battle, Constantine looks up and sees a symbol appear in the sky. It's actually right up there on that sail of that boat in the window. For those of you who are at home or online and can't see it, it's something like this. It's like an X which is the, letter, the Greek letter chi and a P. What looks like a P. It's the Greek letter rho. We call that symbol the chi rho. It's the first two letters in the Greek spelling of Christ. And Constantine hears a voice in his head that says something like this by this symbol, you will have victory. Which is great. But then Constantine does something very interesting. He goes ahead and takes that and makes flags, puts it on shields and helmets and swords. It becomes a symbol of the new empire. One in which, yes, Christianity is accepted and modernized and blankets the entire land. And It's easy for me to look at the cross, to twist it into something that, that doesn't transform me, doesn't do something to me, but does something for me, right? And then guess what? I take that cross, very convenient, and I use it as a hammer to go out and self-righteously pound away at the world. And if that's not enough, if I'm not strong enough, I need a little more influence, I go grab a few other people who also are using the cross in the same way. Guess what? Now we've got a nice little contingent of people, right? A group of like-minded folks who, so I don't know, we could have some meetings Go to the polls together. Maybe have enough to be a little voting block. We get together, get some money. Maybe we throw some candidates out there. Ah! Right? So you see how quickly that spirals out of control? Look, I'm not against civic or political participation. I drove the truck, right, in the parade. (laughs) But that can so quickly, if allowed to spiral away, depart from the meaning of what Jesus is doing here. I think about the Pharisee and the perspective that he brings here. Because I, too, am drawn to easy, quick solutions to solve my anxiety, my fear, my insecurity. All these things that, right, that just require my faith to be held in status quo. Don't rock the boat. Seek stability. Prioritize security over everything. And Jesus, frankly, is often a threat to that. We have been living through a year of destabilization, right? Insecurity in more ways than one, that have led to really, really difficult conversations about politics and class and race and the place of power in our country, in the world, these things get superheated very quickly. And when we have students over across the street that want to come and talk about it, the thing that I always turn back to, the root of all of this insecurity, right, all of these societal stressors, is the human heart's inclination to resolve fears through grasping for things, grasping for security. At the root is fear and insecurity and anxiety about my place in the world, my identity, sense of where I belong. So when Jesus shows up, it freaks us out, right? Not only because Jesus wants to address that fear, name the insecurity, but permanently cast it out. Scripture does not tell us that Perfect love comes to address fear, resolve fear, replace our insecurity with security. It just plain and simple casts it out. It banishes fear. And that's hard to swallow because we want Jesus to absolve our fears. To come in and check the closet and tell us there's mon- there's no monsters there. Not that there are monsters there, That there's no monsters there. We want Jesus to replace our insecurity with security. But Jesus doesn't do that alone. The cross is not simply... God mad, humans mad, conflict resolution in the middle. It's about transformation, taking that whole system and completely banishing it, right? Entire sanctification means we take the entire thing that we experience here as humans and make it holy and new. It doesn't play by the world's rules. I'm also one who is just a simple person on the side, who just knows the songs, I catch a piece of the vision. I'm, I remember the words of Zechariah 9. I long to be a prisoner of hope. I'm at the parade. I'm loving it. I'm catching the vision and it's good. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'm taking my cloak and tossing it in the road and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, King. But then the parade ends. Time to take my camping chairs, load the car up, head back to the house. The weight of the world is heavy. Normal stresses of every day, hard work, big questions of life that I just don't have the answers to, the lack of a clear voice of God in my head just laying out my path before me, all those things just seem to mount up. Slowly, right, I journey from being enraptured by God's spirit on Sunday to shouting, crucify him just a few days later. You know what, that heart, that attitude, probably worse than an obsession with power or an obsession with security because it's subtle. It's subtle. The lack of a transformed heart is noticed by the community around me who use me as a measuring rod of what the Christian life looks like. Those friends of mine who don't believe. And on my worst days, do I want others to look at my life and determine whether they ought to change their heart and follow Christ by my example? That's a hard question. Am I the best indicator of whether Christ has transformed my life? Am I living into that every day? Ultimately, each of these approaches, each of these participants, I think, miss the vision and the goal and the intentionality behind what Jesus is doing here on Palm Sunday, riding on the back of a mule, a borrowed mule, even. I miss the story because I fail to adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider being equal with God something to exploit but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. And when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him, gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Of course, those aren't my original words. They're out of Philippians chapter 2, which happens to be the epistle text for today in the lectionary. You see, Jesus knew an important truth here, and that's that worldly systems of power, worldly definitions of security, they do not have the power to set people free. Only radical, radical humility that lays life down can truly Model for us what it looks like to live a sanctified life that lives for others. If I'm the Roman, what I need to hear here is that no king or crown or empire has the power to shake the depths of hell. Only sacrifice. It was not a kingdom victory in the classic idea of what the world would say that tore the veil in the temple. It was sacrifice. And when I come to the end of my days and stand before the judgment seat, right, I'm not going to plead the power of any crown or scepter or sword or shield or way of the world. I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus. And if I have allowed my imagination to be captured in such a way that causes me to wander away from that truth, I've missed it. If I'm the Pharisee, what I need to hear here is, what good is a peace or stability or system that gives me security if it comes on the backs of others? a system that excludes folks from the world of holiness because it makes life easier for me. That path leads to legalistic, exclusive salvation. And if I really believe that Christ comes and eliminates barriers so that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, I have to live into a vision of the kingdom that says, my security does not come first. If I'm just a common man, who, hears the, who sees Jesus riding on the mule and is reminded of that great old hymn, I also have to admit that power built on popularity, fame, the latest miracle that's been done, that's fickle and meaningless because it's not going to sustain me from week to week. Only a transformed and holy heart will. And if I cannot lean into the truth of that, I'm going to continue to have to come back Sunday after Sunday to confess that I've been shouting crucify him all week in my heart. This week, we celebrate more than just Sunday. The rising from the dead of Jesus Christ to take away our sins. We also before then get to celebrate the putting to death of the old. And so I want to invite you as we journey to Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday. That in the quiet of this week. We identify those places where our imagination, our vision, our context has informed what we want to ask of Jesus. To instead realize that it's Jesus who's asking of us to accept and embrace a radical humility in the world. One that says, I will place the life of Christ first. I will follow his example. So today I'm convicted that my imagination gets captured by other things by worldly systems of power that ultimately do not have the power to save. If I'm willing to recognize Jesus riding on this donkey for what it is and what he wants to communicate to me, my life can be radically transformed and renewed. And so it's a joyful thing, this journey, because it calls me to reflect and identify those places where I can put to death the old and rise on Sunday a new creation. God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your word today. I pray that as we continue to seek you this week, that you would remind us of that radical humility which calls us to something new and different, something that's outside the bounds of the way that the world defines power, security, tradition. We thank you, Lord, for your presence here this morning. We ask that you come, you fill our hearts, you help us to lean into the holy way of life you have called us to. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.